Welcome to our After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Our podcast is here to help teachers and tutors. We will be discussing the latest issues in education and sharing top tips for use in the classroom, both face-to-face or virtually. If you work in education and looking to improve or develop your skills, then this podcast is here to help you. Welcome to the After the Bell podcast brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership, who are part of the Classroom Partnership, a collective group of education service providers who have been providing whole school recruitment, professional development and education support in the UK and internationally since 1999. I am Georgie, Director of Learning and Development for the Classroom Partnership. This is a series of podcasts initially focusing on Rosenshine's principles of instruction, And in today's episode, Helen Morgan, a previous head of school, and Andy Bridge, current deputy principal, return and are focusing on step five, which is guiding student practice. In previous episodes, we focused on the first four steps of the principles of instruction. So before we move on to step five further, Andy, can you give us a quick recap of what the first four steps covered in our previous episodes? Yeah, hi, Georgie. Yeah, Coscom. So in the four episodes that we've looked at so far, the first one, uh, we considered daily review. We linked it to uh, Ebbinghouse's forgetting curve and how we can use strategies to, um, such as daily review, to help move information from students' working memory into their long-term memory. The second podcast, we were looking at breaking down new information into small steps, so making it really manageable, avoiding that cognitive overload, and really sequencing uh, the steps that learners need to take in order to understand and master a new concept. The third episode, we were looking at asking questions, uh, which sounds incredibly obvious, but we were kind of focused on what makes a good question and the purpose of questions and how that can lead to increases in learning. And then finally, episode four, we were looking at modelling and worked examples and the importance of having really high expectations, um, modelling kind of academic scholarship and supporting students on a journey from a blank page to creating their own kind of perfect answer in that way. Absolutely. So we're modelling and uh, representing learning of Rosenshine's principles of instruction as well as we go. So actually scaffolding for our teachers um, and our strategies. A quick recap. Absolutely. So uh, and that's the daily review completed. So, Helen, I'm going to move on. Do you have any further reflections to offer around the first four steps? I think the, the big reflection for me is we kind of are four episodes in is when we think about rules and chains principles, it's about teachers doing things really deliberately uh, with a really intentional approach. Um, And I think I said last time doing them by design rather than by default. And I think when we really invest in our practice and, you know, do things very deliberately, then as teachers, we can start to see real gains, um, not just for ourselves as practitioners, but also on students learning as well. And I think that's certainly one of the the biggest reflections for me. If we put our back into anything, then we can make huge progress. Absolutely. And for me, I think also a reflection about this is this is sort of they are principles they're not sort of a a have to do it isn't a checklist um you know that this is sort of meant to be as a supportive sort of structure and guidance for teachers as well so certainly that's been my kind of takeaway around it um and although they seem quite obvious 
the things that we're discussing it also they make a lot of sense so I really appreciate um, having these conversations and unpacking these in further and I know a lot of the teachers that are listening are finding these useful shall we now focus on our fifth principle which as I've mentioned is guiding student practice and Rosenshine apology I put my teeth in research suggests that the most effective teachers get more time for guided practice and that's proven to be directly linked to spending time using worked examples Helen, can you tell me what's what is guided practice about? So I think um, guided practice is probably one of the more straightforward principles in lots of respects. And it simply is about teachers guiding and supporting students to, to practice um, working on new material. And, you know, if we think about teaching, we're often pouring new knowledge into students but the new knowledge is pretty hopeless. Um, it's a bit like assessment for learning or marking books. If you don't do anything with it, then it's a waste of time. So I think as we're kind of building new knowledge with students and teaching them, then we need to give them time to practice um, that new material and test out that they've really got it. Um, and, you know, ultimately, um, the guiding practice is about doing that with the support of the teacher. So having the teacher there, um, either scaffolding themselves or providing scaffolds for students so that what we don't do is make that jump from dependence to independence too quickly and then secure lots of misconceptions. Um, I think also kind of just building on that, again, where we guide students practice, um, we help them to build that level of fluency, that level of automaticity, because they start to really consolidate their knowledge, their understanding, and, and particularly that understanding of how to transfer the knowledge into different situations and different contexts. Um, Andy, I don't know if you want to build on that. Yeah, I think that was a really good summary. Like My um, kind of reflection on... This is it is quite a common sense principle, but like for example, my school this week have launched um, the performing arts department have launched their school show they're putting on in uh, February March time. So there's the sign ups, the auditions this week, but when they've released the schedule for the rehearsals, it is two or three times a week after school every week between now and the actual show taking place. They're in on Saturdays, they're in on Sundays. There's a really like intensive rehearsal period. And when they get to do that show and it's um, probably on three nights and there'll be a full audience every night, it'll be really slick and really professional and the students will know it inside out. Whereas if the only rehearsal was half an hour the day before, the, the, the performance would be a shambles. So it's quite an obvious analogy, um, especially with that word rehearsal. But we have to find time to build into our lessons where students rehearse and practice with that teacher input, getting the feedback, having you there supporting them. Um, because if, if they don't get that that amount of time invested in the practice, when they come to apply it on their own independently or in an exam situation, they'll flounder. I think just building on that as well with, you know, what Andy talked about before with the idea of, you know, the working memory and trying to move things into the long term memory. I think what we know is that when students rehearse things, um, they're much easier for them to retrieve because they're stored in 
that long-term memory so they're not having to think where did I actually you know put that knowledge or put that understanding and you know what we know is if 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 rehearsal time is short like Andy said students will struggle to remember and if you take that into the the performing arts arena if they don't spend time really practicing learning their lines then they're going to really struggle to remember their lines when they're under pressure and I think that rehearsal is about again you know not just building confidence but building real competence and helping students to become very very knowledgeable about their their learning and and those processes of you know how do you know more and make sure that you can remember more as well so really increasing the stickiness of learning thank you helen i really really like that concept of um the stickiness and i think for less confident learners um and the less prior knowledge they have it's more the most important thing to have that practice time would you agree andy yeah, i think so it just builds confidence um the more you practice something especially if you've got that support of the teacher by your side who is guiding you they're getting you started they're checking the answers they're giving feedback it just builds the student's confidence and over time that, that can only be a good thing yeah totally agree and i think in 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 turn it fuels motivation and engagement um so we go back to creating independent learners again um, as you mentioned about the course that we have um, so that actually over time we build the metacognition skills that they're looking for so moving on what does guided practice look like in a classroom helen so yeah that's always a great question isn't it how do we kind of create that bridge between the theory of guided practice and and the reality of what does this look like for a teacher and I think one of the things when you look at a lot of the research about this that it says is that um, teachers who use a lot of guided practice give lots of explanations to students about new topics or new concepts and new ideas. And I think, again, if you take that a step further, um, they give lots of explanations. They can give lots of examples. I think Andy used the phrase when we were talking about this earlier. They always have another example up their sleeve and they're able to really reframe those examples. And they spend a lot of time doing that. Or dare I say it, they invest a lot of time in doing that because they know that doing that will pay real dividends um, as students move towards doing their independent practice. So if you look at guided um, practice as a strand of Rose and Shine's principles, to a certain extent, it's, it's the first strand of practice or the first stage of practice within that strand. I think when we think about perhaps weaker teachers or novice teachers, um, they don't tend to spend a lot of time on guided practice and instead what they'll do is they'll move students to worksheets and tasks more quickly um, and they'll give shorter explanations and you know the real challenge with that is is students if they're focusing on worksheets they're focusing on tasks and completing tasks and they're not really thinking about learning and really developing their learning over time I'd agree, Helen. I think um, sometimes, like you said, you see it with weaker teachers, or sometimes I think it's 
this is really quite difficult for early career teachers having that repertoire of explanations so that if you've explained something and a student just doesn't understand it that you've got an alternative explanation ready and a third one ready if they still don't understand that that can be quite daunting i think if you're new to the classroom um, so i think that's something that people pick up with time but also through um just sitting down and planning those explanations and thinking what what misconceptions might students have what might they misunderstand is the explanation that i'm giving really as clear as it could be and and get some feedback on that so you've got that range of explanations that you can give um i, I think as well it it kind of links to that phrase about um practice makes perfect so it, practice makes perfect it doesn't practice makes permanent so the the more opportunity we give students to practice something as Helen said it'll move to the long-term memory it'll become kind of permanent knowledge but we need to make sure that that practice that they're doing is high quality so we need the teacher input at this point it's got to be guided practice before they do it on their own they need your expertise to support them to make sure that the practice that they're doing is actually really high quality and certainly if it's not of high quality there's a chance for misconception so by making sure that it is high quality then those issues can be minimized the worst thing you want is for someone to actually practice and learn something that is a, a misconception yeah absolutely and that happens where teachers move to the independent practice too quickly and let students go on their own before they've really mastered the knowledge I think as well, kind of just building on what you both said there, trying to then unlearn things that you've learned incorrectly is really troublesome for students. Um, and it's really, really hard for them to, to begin to shift that. And I think it links also back to um, principle two, which is about breaking it down into small tasks, isn't it? And uh, making sure that they're repeating the, the practice in, in small chunks which also helps to avoid any sort of other challenges as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's, you can see how Rose and Shine sort of ex principles are actually building as, as we start to sort of focus in and drill down to them in more depth. They're really so, intertwined, like you, you yeah. work on one aspect of them, but actually in doing so, you're bringing in the other strands. And like you said, it's not a checklist. You don't try and force all 10 into every lesson, but actually by picking a few that you're going to work on, the others start threading in there as well. Fabulous. So when is it most effective, Andy? When have you seen the best examples of this? Um, I, I see a lot of good practice um, in terms of guided practice. I was thinking MFL lessons. I think generally MFL teachers, because it literally is a different language that the students are learning, rely on having really clear explanations and devoting a lot of time to that practice. So you see a lot of choral repetition and chanting, or if a student's given a given an answer the teacher might repeat it what they've said but kind of change their intonation or place emphasis on a word so a student identifies an error and then they repeat it back correctly so i think languages in particular i think it's probably worth if you're in a school go and observe how your languages department do this because they tend to spend a lot of their lesson time doing this guided practice the teacher modeling something the students repeating it getting feedback on how they've repeated it tweaking it and going again and am I right in thinking that the repetition doesn't necessarily have to be verbal? It can be sort of, you know, reflection, writing, um, drawing, capturing kind of the, the themes and the messages, but in different formats. Yeah, variety is good. And like as long as you've got a plan uh, and a purpose of 
the activity. I think the variety of approach um, to the guided practices would probably be a strength. Absolutely. So Helen, would you like to build on that at all? Yeah, I think, you know, again, really interesting points. Um, and I think when we think about, you know, teachers putting this into practice and what makes it really effective, certainly when I've seen it in, in lessons, one of the things that I often see teachers do in that guided practice is really working hard to, to get students to summarise and draw out key points in their learning so that when they're thinking perhaps about a piece of content or some new knowledge, what are the main things that they need to remember? Um, and also going back to that process of how can they begin to remember those? And, you know, again, like in languages, Andy was saying, you see a lot of um, chanting, a lot of choral repetition. I think in other subjects, you see teachers when they're really guiding that practice, rephrasing things for students or getting students to, again, paraphrase something from somebody else. So what they're doing is really consolidating and securing what students know and, and scaffolding that um, in lots of different ways. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, when, when I was at school, I'm probably going to give away my age here. Um, which is obviously 25. Um, but we we did lots of pracy when I was at school and lots of summary um, of texts, not just in English, but in other subjects as well, where we had to really identify the main points um, in, you know, maybe 100 words or 50 words. Um, and we often think that this idea of guided practice is new. But actually, effective teachers have been doing guided practice for years. I think what, again, has really come to the fore with this is doing it very, very explicitly and understanding, like Andy said, um, why we're doing it. So we're not just keeping students busy. We're helping students to become better learners by thinking about our pedagogy really carefully. Yeah, it, I think it's really interesting. So all those examples that you gave then of summarizing um that it's a really like high level skill to be able to read a complex text identify the most important features and condense that into your own summaries it's difficult and and they're not going to master that without a lot of practice but equally on the um on the converse i think you see effective guided practice where teachers are pushing for elaboration where a student gives quite a short undeveloped answer and the teachers pushing them saying tell me more tell me more give me more detail and build on it what else can you remember so i think it kind of works in both ways the, the summarizing down to the, the most core knowledge but also taking their basic explanation and building that back up and adding in the detail i think are both really effective methods of guided practice yeah i totally agree with that and i think when you watch a really again, expert, skillful, master teacher, really pushing students to elaborate. Again, those minimal encouragers are absolutely critical, aren't they? Just, you know, tell me more and, and. And again, students then don't just give you the first thing that they remember. They start trawling their long-term memory and the more practice they become at that, um, again, the easier it is for them to find things as they work through. Yeah, I think and it, it just helps with the, um, you know, kind of zooming in and zooming out that you might see in a really effective lesson, like really pushing for the micro detail 
of the topic and then zooming back out to the big picture and helping students move between those two um, states, that's hard. Um, and if you don't put the thought into how you're going to do that, it's very easy to confuse students. But I think it's really powerful if you do get it right. I think one of... Go on, sorry, Georgie. I was going to say that that that's a really, really strong skill to be able to make those connections and, and also build those connections for the students as well. Sorry, Helen, go ahead. Yeah, I think I was getting carried away with with Andy's comments there. But I think, you know, again, when we see teachers really investing time and I think there's a, there's a really interesting um I suppose use of words in in education we often and I've just used it there we talk about spending time but actually for me if you do guided practice really well you really invest in your time because um if you invest the time in the guided practice then students when they come to do the independent practice are, are far better prepared and in that situation um, when you move them to the independent practice they're not putting their hands up straight away saying I don't know what to do um, because actually what you've done is you've built like built their confidence you've built their competence with like you said earlier Georgie those small steps so that when they get to the independent practice they're really really ready to go for it and you know they're almost saying kind of go and sit at your desk as the teacher and just let me get on um, because they're, they're really ready to go. It's like the elastic band effect. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there can be a bit of a theory of a teacher like, oh, I don't want to spend too long on this because I'm not going to give them enough time to get onto the main activity, to the, the main part of the lesson. But actually, as you just said, investing the time now in this section um, means that when you do get to the independent task, they're set up and they're ready to go. There's not the panic, there's not the questions. You've set them up to just be able to get on on their own. And I, th I think that leads us very nicely on to considering what Rosenshine's principles of instruction um, and guiding student practice. What are the challenges and are there any top tips? And I'll, I'll, I'll pass that back to Helen. I think for me, one of the big um, challenges um, um, is is about teachers being brave enough to invest enough time in the guided phase and not making that jump to independent practice too quickly. I think when you make the jump from, you know, watch me and being dependent on the teacher to now you have a go without the guided practice in between, then one of the really difficult things is you get students who have got misconceptions where the errors haven't been ironed out where they haven't got that fluency and you know you, you get an element of what I would describe as um, clunkiness when they hit the independent practice because they're not ready for it they're not you know they're not what I would call warmed up fully um, before they start the match and to a certain extent what we want is to warm students up really really well so that when they go on the pitch and they have to play the game, um, you know, for want of a better phrase, they're ready for the full 90 minutes mm -hmm. and they can be able to play for the full 90 minutes really, really well. Um, and, you know, from the first touch, they're feeling good about the game rather than putting students in a position where they're starting a task, they're not quite sure what to do, they're muddling 
through and and at that point what we're doing is we're we're securing misconceptions we're helping them to learn things that sometimes aren't correct um and that can do more harm than good so for me you know really thinking about this as an investment that it really helps their long-term development and progress as learners is really really valuable Absolutely. And I love that analogy, Helen. It's brilliant. It really relates to a lot of people, I'm sure. So, Andy, would you would you um, have any sort of additional comments around challenges or top tips that people need to be aware of? Uh, I think one way that this can be really useful that we maybe sometimes overlook um, is when we're thinking about homework. So we know that the research says that if homework's done really well and really thought about carefully it can have a massive impact on learning and where homework's done poorly uh, in terms of schools approach the impact on, on learning is minimal or even negative in some cases so I think when we're thinking about the homework that we want our students to do we know that all of our students have got quite different home lives so you might have a student who's got quite room to do it in a big desk access to the internet a parent on hand who can guide them and help them and other students might not have access to any of those things so if you set your homework with 30 seconds to go in the lesson, scribble it down in the planner and off they go, then those students that have got access to all those resources are at a real advantage because they can do some of that guided practice at home with a parent, a carer, another adult um, and using their resources. Whereas if you actually maybe launch your homework at the start of the lesson and then spend time doing that guided practice, setting the students up really well, building that confidence, making sure that they're 100% clear on on the process and and what they need to work through then when they take that homework home regardless of their setup at home their situation the access they've got to additional support you know that you've done everything you can to support them in that independent stage when you're not there as the teacher and that that then means that they'll carry on doing the learning. It's it's almost the the flipped learning model, isn't it? Where uh, they're actually you know you're you're prepping them up for uh, the the next stage. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah it just supports a kind of equal opportunity, like equal access to to the homework. You've done everything that you can to make it as accessible as possible. Yeah, and remove some of the barriers that, as we know, um, some of the disadvantaged pupils are struggling with at the moment. Yeah. Definitely. Helen, do you have anything else to add before we start thinking about our key takeaways from this session? I think, you know, it, it, again, it's just really interesting because I think, you know, when we think about guided practice, like Andy said, it's tempting just to think about it in the classroom. But actually it goes beyond the classroom. And what we know is if, you know, if we practice anything and if we have support with that practice to make sure that we're getting feedback and making changes to to get it right um eventually we will be able to do it independently really well and you know when we think about rose and shine's principles for me you know giving students that opportunity to have that practice with the support of the teacher is really important and i think what it what it really emphasizes is how vital the teacher is in enabling successful learning so what students would be able to achieve without guided practice and the support of the teacher um, is probably not as great as what they can achieve with the support of a teacher and lots of guided practice and that's not to say they wouldn't get there anyway 
but it will take longer um, and they'll probably learn lots of things that they have to unlearn on the way. So, you know, the role of the teacher within this is really important. Andy, what would you um, say is your key takeaway? Um, I think for me, I mean, I've always kind of thought, yeah, guided practice, it's important, but when it really hit me, like how crucial it is, is during lockdown when we first moved to independent learning and like Zoom and Teams were new to everyone and we weren't used to working in that way with students, like how difficult that was for the students to work at home when you were maybe uploading a resource or a narrated PowerPoint or something without your guidance and input there they find it so hard to access so that's the first point when I thought like you know I was looking at remote learning and how can we make that that dialogue is so important between the teacher and the student and maybe that was missing um, in a lot of schools initial provision when they first set that up in lockdown and I think obviously as time went on staff got a lot kind of more competent and upskilled and confident in using technology to support um, that guided practice remotely and kind of need to bring that back into the classroom but in terms of a key takeaway I think it's quite interesting as well that um, Sherrington talks about in the book this idea that we need to de demonize rote learning um, and the fact that it's seen as like such an old-fashioned archaic approach and you know it's like it's Victorian we shouldn't teach in that way anymore but actually the way that students retain information is by practicing it um, and, and that's not terrible that's not uh, something that we should avoid at all actually we need to kind of embrace that that the way to move that into the long-term memory is to make sure they practice and practice and practice and get that feedback it's brilliant how educational theory goes full circle isn't it it's uh, just incredible helen would you have any final kind of takeaways that you'd like to share with us I think the you know a big takeaway for teachers with this is um, we often don't we we've used the the language not just in this podcast episode but in others about dependence and independence and maybe a key takeaway is about the value of interdependence um, and I think when we kind of look at guided practice it really is about developing that interdependence um, within the classroom you know, between learners and learners, learners and teachers, learners and resources, um, to really kind of support that process. And again, you know, um, take them on that learning journey. You know, if you take that idea of the word guided, um, it's a really important word, isn't it, within the process of, of guided practice that we're really kind of helping them to, to make sure that they're heading in the right direction. So really what you're saying is as teachers, we're just really glorified travel guides. Is that what we're thinking? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that's probably it. Apart from, I think the only travel guiding that we're doing at the moment is either um, on Zoom, um, <laughs> kind of within our local vicinity. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's, as always, it's an absolute pleasure both for, uh, for having you here today, our experts, Helen Morgan and Andy Bridge. Um, for me, my takeaway is around, you know, how how guided guiding student practice is. Um, it helps with stickiness. It's about warming them up, getting them ready for the match. We've had some great kind of concepts and analogies here. The concept of interdependence. And I'll put my teeth back in again, um, but also making them independent and the value of of spending the time with practice. So. 
This is the end of our podcast today. Um, we will be unpacking and discussing the next step, which is checking for student understanding in our next session. Um, during that episode, we'll explore the many benefits of checking for understanding as suggested by Rose and Shine, um, which includes gaining feedback and the importance of nurturing and encouraging learners to elaborate on their knowledge. You can pick up Afterbell podcasts after which are released on a weekly basis and we aim to provide quick tips and discussions with our experts around all things educational um, and you can access these while you're on your daily commute or cooking a dinner or on your treadmill or your focus of the day and look forward to catching up with you very soon. Thank you.